Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In humanitarian contexts, in war zones, or on the ship, I think it is very important to be authentic, to really show the people um, you know, amidst that great, great suffering that you are a fellow human and that you are with them. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 80 with Sarah Sinkirova. Sarah is a Slovakian human rights journalist. Her work focuses on migration, human rights, humanitarian issues, and women's rights. In this episode, we talk about finding the balance between acting as a passive observer to difficult and often tragic situations, as well as showing compassion to people who are suffering. I can't help but explore the term adventure with Sarah, as well as talking about ethics and the human psyche. I also speak to her about her own heritage and how it might positively influence the work that she does, and how that might change the access that she has to the people whose stories she tells. And just quickly, we've had a few emails over the last little while about trigger warnings. We're in the middle of working out how we approach that sort of thing, because I decided to stop doing them a year or so ago after I read an article. In the meantime, I'm not going to go into the detail, but this episode is a heavy one. It's serious, it's real, and I'm sure you can imagine the sort of avenues we might walk down given Sarah's work. But on the flip side, it is immensely positive and hopeful, and Sarah is an inspiration. Okay, and if you've decided to stay, before we begin, I'd like to point you towards the Martin Moran Foundation, our charitable partner. As I've said before, they're an amazing organisation, and their mission is to get people out into the hills, the mountains, um, and to help people discover and live a life full of adventure. It's an initiative very close to my heart, and I'd be really grateful if you were able to support their work. Also, if you're enjoying the Adventure Podcast, we're 80 episodes in now, so please do subscribe. Um, If you've been with us since the start, then thank you so much. And if you haven't, then there's 80 episodes for you to go and listen to. And if you're subscribing and listening on iTunes, then an honest review would also be amazing. Subscribing and reviewing helps us with visibility and helps bring more people to the podcast. Finally, the podcast is produced alongside Sidetrack Magazine, our spiritual sister publication. So if you're enjoying the podcast and want a written and photographic adventure fix, then head to sidetrack.com. Okay, over to Sarah Sinkirova. (laughs) 
I guess a logical place to start is if you could just if you could just introduce yourself. Who are you? What do you do? Why are we having this conversation? <laughs> right, all these questions. So um, I'm a human rights journalist. Um, I'm a freelance journalist, and um, I originally come from Slovakia. So right now I'm recording this podcast from from my home in Bratislava. And I've been covering um, human rights and humanitarian issues and women's rights um, around the world for for the last maybe seven or eight years. Um, and as I was saying, um, I originally come from Slovakia and I I, um, I left my home when I was 15. I used to live in France and in the UK and around the world working for NGOs. And then at one point I just... Um, I decided I wanted to document stories that matter and you know I was very lucky because at that time I was working in Africa, I was in Asia, later on I used to work uh, with the victims of domestic violence in the UK as well as a support worker and as a researcher and then um, from there I, I decided I wanted to become more of a journalist and I started covering humanitarian stories and um, I've worked in many, many different countries since, um, in Ukraine, Georgia, Belarus, Uganda, Rwanda, Morocco. And I've recently spent um, four weeks on a refugee uh, rescue boat on the Mediterra- in the Mediterranean on the, on the CI4. Um, and I participated in the rescue of 408 refugees um, that we rescued in May 2021. So that's about it, my story in short. It sounds like there's a much longer version for us to unpack there. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Um, So let's stick to the start. So why did you, or where did you go, I guess, when you were 15 and what was the motivation and, and what were you trying to do? Yeah, so I think this is, you know, the fact that I'm from Slovakia is also one of the reasons why I'm so interested in in covering migration and refugee stories, right? Because I was born right after the Velvet Revolution and, you know, what I saw growing up in in Eastern Europe, in in Czechoslovakia in in the 90s um, and later in Slovakia was that people were really so keen to travel and really, you know, wanted to discover the world and... Um, discovered the, the Western countries for sure. And I certainly grew up, you know, in, in that atmosphere of, of people just just being really, really kind of euphoric um, about, about the future for, for a while. At least that's what I was perceiving as a child because everyone was telling me, you know, you were born in this happy period where, where you are free to travel. And... Um, I I was very lucky, I guess, and uh, I was able to move to France at first when I was 15 to study um, in in a high school in France, uh, which is where I've lived for for the next seven or eight years. And uh, I studied communications. And um, from there, I kind of, I was very lucky as well because I knew at a very young age that I wanted to be a journalist or make documentary films. And from there, I went to work in many other countries and pursuing human rights projects and and then ultimately became a journalist. Wow. Yeah, that is. It sounds like you had it worked out fairly early on. I did. Um, so what did you do when you graduated? What was the plan? <laughs> um, 
I, um, so I, uh, I was studying in Paris and I was studying communications and for my final um, internship that I had to do in my second year of master's degree, I went to Indonesia to work for the French Institute. And that was when I kind of discovered, you know, the world of traveling and, and, um, and adventure as well, other than just, you know, working in communications and also became really interested in in human stories which I mean I've always been interested and I think you know an interesting thing to say is that when I first arrived in France I was you know I was very young I was a teenager and I was living at the time with a host family and that host family was from Algeria so they were themselves immigrants right and and they really um, you know received me with so much kindness and hospitality and and I've always been very very interested in in covering stories about migration and then obviously when I was in Indonesia and later on when I graduated I went to Burkina Faso to Africa to work as an editor for an uh, for for an NGO actually I was editing kind of communications and educational um, uh, text because it was actually an educational institution um, um, I was I was just really interested in you know in, in the human stories and what happened um, in Indonesia not as much but when I was in Burkina Faso I was very young I was twenty two and what happened was that around that time the 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 war of the military intervention in Mali um, happened and it was kind of unfolding and I was in Ouagadougou in in working in in you know in Burkina Faso and all of a sudden we started seeing these refugees coming in from Mali and so that was I guess the first time I was kind of confronted you know with with seeing at the time and maybe starting to document um not just you know human stories but stories of of migrants and refugees and then uh, later on, I um, I returned back to Slovakia to my home country, and then um, the war in Ukraine broke out in twenty fourteen, um, and so that was I think the first kind of conflict that I started to cover. Not not really going to the conflict zone, but again, you know, um, covering the stories of the internally displaced persons, and that's how it all began. Well, it sounds like it got very serious very quickly. It, it has yeah definitely definitely and then I think once you um you know once you start doing and you know doing this amazing job and obviously it's very hard to start off as a freelance writer but once you start documenting these stories and you know once you kind of interact with those people um it's just for me I kind of knew that was you know my mission and what I wanted to do the most and as I've mentioned you know I I think I was very lucky because I was born in the right place in the right time, right? Because I was born in Eastern Europe, but I was born right after the fall of the communist regime. But oftentimes I have been thinking about, you know, what my life would have been like if I was born like 10 years, 20 years, you know, prior or even later. And so um, sometimes, you know, when I see people fleeing from humanitarian crises I kind of you know I I also see you know the history unfolding and I also kind of perceive it through my own lens you know thinking about I was lucky to be born in in the right place in the right time but you know if it it could have could have been very different and at that time you know the world, world was kind of more divided into east and west 
Um, and I was on the less privileged privileged side. And, you know, today we kind of tend to talk more about North and, and South. And again, you know, I when I see the stories of, of refugees, to me, you know, it maybe feels a bit different than it, you know, that, that it maybe would to somebody who's from a Western country. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because the natural place for me to go here is to talk about Africa and talk about, you know, the migrant boats and things like that. But actually, as we talk, I realize my own kind of naivety around somewhere like Slovakia. You know, I know very little about that place. What I mean, it would almost be interesting to hear from you, you know, what's it like? What was it like growing up there? Um and now that you're well-traveled, what's it like looking back at it from a well-traveled perspective? Well, you know, as I said, I just, for me personally, covering these stories, having covered so many humanitarian issues, I just, you know, keep thinking about how privileged I was. Um, I think um, for me, you know, the way I remember it is obviously probably very different to to what it really was for for people because I was I was a kid and and you know memory is not really accurate right so for me the way I remember my childhood was that people were coming out of something very very difficult um of you know horrible years of of a dictatorship and then all of a sudden at the beginning of the 90s they felt free right they they had this kind of that's what I remember you know that's that's the my parents my family the people I was growing up with that's what they were telling me they they were very kind of you know euphoric about the future they were very naive in a way you know because they thought that now everything has opened up opened up and everything would be easy and and they had a lot of kind of you know these you know, dreams and idealistic, you know, um, <laughs> visions of of what life would be like in Western Europe. And to be honest, sometimes when I listen to refugees, you know, coming from from Africa, for example, and they and they tell me about what they had imagined for themselves, I kind of, to me, it's almost feel like, you know, it must have been similar in Eastern Europe, I think, at that time. And obviously, you know, once you migrate, once you make that journey, that journey oftentimes was, you know, very difficult, both for for, for immigrants from Eastern Europe. And, you know, it's just extremely difficult for, you know, for, for refugees from Africa. And I think we, we will talk about that a bit later in the podcast. But um, to me, that's definitely, you know, something that I have been thinking about um, a lot. And the fact that, you know, as, as, I, as I said, I was, you know, when I, when I was little, I was, you know, from the, you know, I, I remember we were traveling actually a lot with my family and we, we actually went to the UK and this was in the early, early 90s, must have been in 94 or 95. And and I think, you know, at that time, we were the weird people from, from Eastern Europe. I remember, you know, how weird it felt, you know, um, and how difficult it was to get the visa and to even go, you know, to the UK for, for a vacation. And then I actually haven't done anything. And I myself, you know, as a child, when I was, um, I was, I was 14 when Slovakia joined the EU, when I was 15, when I, when I, when I moved to France. I haven't really done anything and yet I have this incredible privilege you know that now I'm part of the EU and to me you know seeing 
how badly Europe treats refugees and migrants today is just heartbreaking. And I really kind of keep reminding myself of how privileged I am and, you know, how different it was at the time. And I think that kind of helps me build maybe a more, I don't want to say maybe a deeper connection, but there is something to my story that really makes my reporting maybe even kind of maybe stronger or or deeper because I feel that connection with the refugees. I was just about to ask that. I was, you know, I, it seems really apparent that your kind of cultural ancestry and, and, and the place that you're from allows you to connect with these people in a way that I would really struggle to do with my British passport, my ex-EU status and my, you know, East of England culture and heritage. So, yeah, it's quite obvious that and the way that you speak about it, you know, I can see you, obviously people listening to this can't, but you speak about that so passionately. It seems to be a fairly big part of who and what you are. Definitely, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, when it comes to journalism, I, you know, all of a sudden I become this very, very passionate person. And, you know, I'm this reporter <laughs> who's kind of out in the field and, you know, I'm ready to die for my story and <laughs> I'm ready to, to, you know, to go anywhere and to do anything because it's so important um, to me. But it's not just because... Um, you know, I'm I'm from Slovakia or f- from Eastern Europe, and I have this you know historical kind of um, heritage. But also because defending human rights is so important to me, and you know I have seen so many human rights violations. And again, you know, it's also part of you know what Czechoslovakia and Eastern Europe you know have been through. And obviously, you know, we can definitely look at it from the historical perspective. But also, you know, when I when I see the human rights abuses and also because I've worked um, for a domestic violence shelter for, for two years and, um, you know, I've worked for, for many different women's NGOs. I'm also very sensitive to these human stories and I'm just, you know, I'm just this this passionate, but, you know, and slightly naive reporter who, who will always defend human rights. <laughs> no, I don't think it's naive, but I think we'll come on to all of that a bit later. So. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you, I think you said it was um, Mali that was your first kind of um, experience of, well, those human rights violations and those really displaced people. Can you talk to me about that experience, what it was like, what happened and, and how it shaped you? So I was actually in Burkina Faso and I was seeing, you know, the refugees coming. And I remember one day I was I was going back home from work and... Um, there was this refugee from from Mali who had um, I don't know how long actually he he had been in Burkina Faso at that point and I think he just saw me you know he saw that obviously you know I was a white woman and he came to me and he was crying and he was just you know begging for help and at that time you know I I was 22 and you know and I, I, I was just I remember that was such a strong encounter with human suffering and, you know, displacement. And um, and also I had a lot of colleagues from Mali at the time who all of a sudden became kind of very worried for their families. And yes, I guess, you know, it was there and then that I kind of somehow start, you know, I was beginning to understand that this was what I what I wanted to do, that I wanted to write about it. And obviously I was very young. I didn't quite know how to go about it. 
and then later on the following year I was I was in Slovakia for a short pe- period of time and when the war in Ukraine broke out I remember thinking because you know when when you are in Africa and and you are from a European country uh, the fact that there is a war going on nearby or in your neighboring country at the time to me that sounded very strange it at that time in in 2012-2013 would have sounded crazy to me um if if you know if you told me that um i would go back to my home country and there a war would unfold in my neighboring country you know it, it was very difficult for me to you know and for anyone i guess in europe and then when i moved back to slovakia you know the war in ukraine um broke out and all of a sudden i thought even though you know geographically it's in eastern ukraine so it's still very very far away i thought to myself it's it's crazy right that that you know there is a war going on in in my neighboring country and you know i have to go there and have to interview the people who fled and again i was confronted confronted with with that huge amount of suffering and people crying and um and it, you know it's funny because i had just um returned to, to eastern ukraine i was there in in august like a month ago and and the war is still going on and i have seen so much suffering you know on the on the front line of eastern ukraine and you know and and i had interviewed people um you know this seven years later and this is still going on and people live there in destroyed houses and we could maybe even talk about that if you want uh, i know it's it's not the refugee rescue boat um story but again you know it's it's just incredible and also very sad to see that so many of these humanitarian tragedies of our time kind of go on and on and on and i think the same goes for you know migration to europe um that is not not over and we could still see these tragic stories going on yeah and i i think if you're happy to i think we should talk about it because it's a good example of the kind of conflict or the kind of issue where it hits the news it's current for a while and then it goes and it's gone and you know i'm very happy to admit that i haven't thought about there being a war in ukraine for a long time because i'm not exposed to it definitely and you know not even like people in slovakia i think i'm not exposed to it and you know and disaster is our, our neighboring country and i think this is one of the the quote unquote frozen conflicts the so-called frozen conflicts i wouldn't call it that but obviously the the fighting is kind of sporadic and so there hasn't you know been many stories recently you know and especially not stories documenting um the lives of people and to me i was um i was um I was I was on the front line and when I was visiting the people who live on the contact line the, the you know the front line I was I was um embedded for for a few days with uh, with people in need with a, a Czech NGO and um I had interviewed um some of the people that they had been helping and it was mainly the elderly people and disabled people and you know what what we see and this is one of the things that is kind of very typical of eastern ukraine is that unfortunately the the percentage of people who remained living on on you know on on the contact line it, it's mainly you know the elderly people or disabled people or people who are somehow vulnerable so they were not able to kind of move away um and and really it's you know it's mostly the elderly and it it was you know i've i've seen the most um 
incredibly tragic um, images. I remember the first person we we went to interview was was this um, old lady who was um, who was in her seventies, I think, and who who is a wheelchair user. She has mobility issues. She cannot move at all. Actually, she has very very limited kind of um, mobility and. She lives around five kilometers away from the contact line, so she can still hear shooting at night. Um, but she's not like directly exposed, as in you know some people are really living, <laughs> in you know at the the contact line itself. But she lives in this very old house, and and I remember when we entered the house, it was, it was really hot. The house was kind of, you know destroyed in a way and and really old and the door would the front door would not close and the lady had this kind of a rope attached to it and as we entered she was sitting on her bed and she was trying to move from from her bed kind of sit onto the wheelchair but she couldn't lift herself up because she was too weak and you know and it, it it looked so sad because you know it's a house with an open door and you know in 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 the middle of of the war zone and and this old lady who cannot move and we entered the house and we said hello and we wanted to help her but she didn't want to be helped and i thought oh my god this lady she's going to be so angry at us right because we we just came in 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 such a delicate moment when really kind of she turned to us and she was like the kindest person I've ever seen. And she started telling me and and the lady who was with me, she was like, hello, you are my dearest children and I love you. And it's so nice that you came to talk to me. And she was just so kind, you know, and so happy and um, very kind of connected, had a very kind of deep, you know, spiritual um, connection. And she was telling us that when she hears shooting and and shelling she she prays for the soldiers who do that because she she thinks you know that they do not they don't know what they are doing and the reason why she has a rope attached to to her front door is that when they are you know when when there is bombings and shellings the door kind of it kind of hits the door and it opens it right and she cannot move all the way to the door because she she can she can barely move and so the only way for her to close her door is to kind of pull on that rope and and close the door from her bedroom and on the one hand you know it's so tragic and then on the other hand you see this incredible kind of kindness and spirituality and resilience of the local people and you know and as usual with humanitarian journalism you you know you bump into the most incredible stories and you see the you know the the greatest kind of cruelty and pain and you also see the incredible kindness and resilience and and you know these people who who were really like you know behaving like all these old ladies were behaving like my grandma and just you know hugging me and kissing me and and you know wanting to give me well, anything they had, and as they usually don't have anything, they would, you know, give me apples or tomatoes from their garden and and all of this, you know, in, in the midst of, of the war zone. It's crazy to think it's happening. And, I mean, it's it might be worth, actually, if you're happy to, giving a bit of context on what is happening. Like, why is the conflict still going on? 
Well, as I said, you know, it's it's one of the the conflicts that is, you know, a so-called frozen conflict. So it began in 2014 um, in May, but the conflict is still going on. So it is still um, active. And um, as I've mentioned, there's been a massive, massive displacement crisis um, following, you know, the, the events of 2014 and and the Euromaidan and then the beginning of the war and the towns of of Slavyansk um, that that town has been um, destroyed and obviously that you know the most dramatic events kind of happened around 2014 15 16 and then um, most of the people um, who were able to flee uh, fled um, the at the time if unless you know i don't have the exact number in front of me but i think it was around two million um internally displaced persons um but what what, what kind of is still going on is that the 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 territory is still divided so there is that's what you know when we say the contact line it's actually the line that uh, marks the uh the uh, self-proclaimed kind of separatist regions around the towns of Donetsk and Luhansk and I was actually um, monitoring the situation from the other side so I was in the government controlled areas Um, but the contact line obviously is still it's still a little bit like an open conflict if you will there's snipers there's um, explosive remnants of war Um, and um, for me what was very surprising is that um, obviously, it it must be very hard for local people to see that that their country, the place where they live, has been divided like that in two. Um, and you know, some villages kind of have the you know the contact line in, in in the middle of it, and and people who were living there kind of live you know um, on a contact line that they cannot cross because they they you know they would probably die, they would probably be shot at. Um, and um, I remember that when I was in the zone, I was actually speaking with um, with the people, you know, in, in those villages. And I was asking, are, are you not angry? Like, you know, I, I would certainly be angry and frustrated if this happened in, you know, in my town or in the place where I lived. And they said, you know, it's been going on for seven years. So, you know, what really kind of happens there and unfolds there is is that people have to live you know in in um in a very kind of sad place you know and and most of them are depressed and they do not have the energy to be angry anymore no and so what is it you're trying to say with your work out there well to me personally you know i um i always try to show the human stories of the people who live there and their incredible kindness and resilience and and humanity really and also to say that you know this conflict should not be forgotten and also to say that the you know the war is still going on so a house was shelled um on the 5th of of um august when i was there in the town of krasnoharivka um recently two soldiers were killed so even though you know the the fighting is you know what what people call sporadic, it's still going on, and it's you know it's so important not to forget, and also to humanize history and humanize these stories and the, these conflicts through 
you know what what the people tell me and this I guess is is the same as you know what I try to do when I report on migration and you know particularly when you report about migrants and refugees arriving into the EU and you know I'm and as a journalist I've been confronted with so so many hate comments and you know and people kind of really dehumanizing refugees and I think it's very important to keep telling these human stories to try and give these people a little bit of dignity and to show that they are the same humans as we are and you know when I was in Ukraine and I saw these old ladies these babushkas I was like you know to me they are like my grandma right and this is what I what I kind of tend to feel and uh, you know and but you know when you see children you kind of care about children as though you know it, it were your children it's like you know it, it's like everyone's children right you, you cannot dehumanize them and I felt the same way with the old ladies you know I kind of try and and you know I have these really personal feelings also about people that I report on I try not to see them as objects but rather as you know as as though they were my family members or my friends to show that they have this kind of um, intrinsic human value, um, if that makes sense, if that doesn't sound too crazy. <laughs> no, it makes total and complete sense. And it's it's the perfect segue because I was going to ask you, like, there's, there's dozens of books written on this subject, but the ethics of it are really interesting, I think, because, you know, it, it, what, and don't worry, I'm fully on your team here, but it's the whole, as a photographer, but... um it's that difficult line of wanting to tell someone's story and give them dignity while simultaneously there's a voyeuristic element to taking their photograph or being in the old lady's house when she's trying to get out of the wheelchair. So, you know, you're clearly much more qualified and clued up on it than I am. Um, can you tell me a bit about the ethics of that style of work? Well, you know, I think this is the core of, of human rights journalism. I think, you know, when you're a human rights journalist, you keep asking yourself those questions all the time. And that is like 99% of, of your work to me, you know, it's it's all about those, you know, ethics and ethical questions. Um and there's so many different opinions on it because, you know, some people could also argue that it's not good to being too attached, you know, to, you know, to say that when I see this old lady, I cannot think of, you know, I have to think of my grandma and try to kind of approach her with that same respect and, and tenderness, I guess. But to me, um, I think in humanitarian contexts, in war zones or on the ship, I think it is very important to be authentic. So to really show the people, um, you know, amidst that great, great suffering that you are a fellow human and that you are with them, that you really have that compassion. Obviously, I think it's very different when you are interviewing someone, you know, in, in I don't know, in a cafe in, in the UK or in Slovakia. And you should be able to keep that, that journalistic distance. But I think when you are in a war zone and you see a lady who cannot move or when you are on the ship and, you know, all of a sudden you you know the, the the rescue team kind of gives you you know small children and babies and they all want to hug you and and because that's what happens happened to us on the ship I think in in those cases I think you should 
just be very authentic and and kind of fully human and really treat them you know treat these people as 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 your you know close people because this is what they need and to me that in those moments that's even more important than than being you know a journalist is just just being a compassionate fellow human um because i think if if you know if you try to be kind of very professional or very journalistic and just you know take that picture or ask the question and leave you will traumatize the people right and you know as they say in in journalism you can be you, you can either become part of the trauma or part of the healing you know i always try to become part of the healing but at the same time as you said you know it's very complicated and certainly for example i had worked with victims of of violence domestic violence violence against women and for example when you work with that group it might be very difficult um to approach them for example you know you have to be very mindful of your distance and you know not everyone wants to be touched or hugged you know even in a way that you would normally touch people but at the same time for example when i was on the ship we had a lot of uh, we actually um rescued 36 women and 150 children and most of them had been through horrible abuse and especially the women who most of whom had been raped and yet they still wanted to i think they wanted to be hugged they wanted to be listened to and i think that's it's a very delicate balance of you know trying to be authentic not not kind of trying to always be mindful of their dignity but also be mindful of what they want and you know and i think it 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 would be inhumane in that situation to for example to refuse to hug them right but it's always a very you know delicate balance of what you can do you know when when you should stop and and as i said for me this is like the core of 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 human rights journalism and you know the questions that you you have to question yourself all the time and i think as long as you question yourself you are probably doing it right you know when you become too sure of what you do then either there might be a problem right that's how i see it but I don't know what your point of view is. You can you can also share your thoughts, journalist <laughs> and photographer. No, well, no. I think I think it's you know listening to you speak so passionately about it. I think it's really hard to argue with you. I mean, as I said, there are dozens of books written on the subject, and some people think you should keep your distance, and some people think you should get in close. I don't feel qualified to have a strong opinion about it, but what I do know of me is that your intention is 100% pure you know what you're trying to do to me sounds so real and honest that it's hard to criticize so no I I think it's wonderful I mean what what I want to ask you is how this affects you and how you guard yourself from being too affected by it yeah, this is a question I get asked a lot. Like this is, and I think for for all of the, what, what you know, when I um when I talk about the rescue operation aboard the CI four, this is what I get asked all the time, and what all the the rescue team members, you know, get asked all the time. To me, I mean, when I talk about the 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 rescue operation aboard the CI four, I always say that at the end we were all very happy because everyone survived so obviously you know that that is one thing is that when you cover stories uh where you know everyone is is safe and well um and you know that experience of you know interviewing these people being with them is kind of positive it it can be a very good experience and I, i guess for me the way i handle it is that i try to just 
be very um, authentic authentic and be there with the people so I really try to show them that you know of course I'm a journalist I you know that there are certain boundaries but you know I'm their friend I'm there to listen to their stories to give them a voice um, to show them compassion because I believe that's part of you know humanity is part of you know the core principles of ethical journalism and I guess to me that's you know that's also a way of kind of protecting myself or finding meaning in what I do is that even though it can be very difficult at times um, you know I'm also there to show um, you know that compassion to the people and I think it oftentimes it can also be a good experience for them um, but obviously you know there are certain tragedies that you know journalists witness like you know for example all the journalists and and the rescue crews that you know, were doing rescues in the Mediterranean and found, you know, empty boats and boats with, you know, where, where people had died and drowned. Obviously, that's, you know, a different situation. And luckily for me, you know, I, I haven't been through that. But again, you know, I, I, I think that, that that's a different story. And that must be, you know, much, much, much harder. Yeah. God, it's hard to imagine. Yeah. So I guess we should talk about CI4, I suppose. <laughs> I think it would be nice to say a few words about it. <laughs> we've, got, we've got a lot of time, so we're all good. Um, so how did it come about and what was your motivation and inspiration for, for going? Yeah, so I've been covering, you know, many different stories about migration and, um, and I've also worked in Morocco and Spain and and you know and and at the time in Burkina Faso, so I was kind of familiar with with the routes and the trajectories, and I had also worked um, with uh, refugees in in Greece, um, documenting their stories, and I had always been you know at least in the recent years, I've been very passionate about trying to monitor the situation in the Mediterranean and trying to kind of find out what happens there and how many people really drown, because that's, you know, another big question as a journalist is that there is a certain lack of data. We will never know exactly how many, you know, people people die there. And I think this is one of the biggest, you know, humanitarian tragedies of our time. And something we will have to explain to our children and, and grandchildren. And I really hope they will you know, ask us these questions and hold us accountable. And it's it's quite difficult actually to get on board a ship because obviously there's a lot of journalists who want to do it. Um, and I had um, collaborated a little bit with CI, you know, quoting them and interviewing them and, and uh, speaking with them for different stories that I had been working on. And then um, what what happened actually is that I was not the journalist who was supposed to be going on the CI4 mission. I think they've had another journalist and then, you know, it kind of changed or got cancelled and, you know, there's been a lot of changes in, in the crewing and then I got I got a last-minute call and um, I got a last-minute call at the end of um, April saying, would you be interested in, in covering, you know, in, in, in coming aboard the CI4 and in covering the rescue? If so, we will wait for you in, you know, six days from now in, in the port of Mariana and, you know, we are sailing off at eight o'clock and if, if you're interested, just be on the ship by that time. <laughs> and... Um, 
and uh, they even said that you know obviously with the quarantines and 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 the you know the standoffs and and everything that's going on you know it can be very difficult to wait for a port of safety it can take up to six weeks um so you have to be ready to kind of you know <laughs> embark on this adventure as you know i guess and just not knowing when exactly you'll be back and you know um you know, I, I'm a, you know, I'm a crazy passionate journalist. So I just, I just left everything I was doing and I just bought my safety shoes and I just went to Buriana and I embarked and, um, and I guess it was like the best thing I've ever done. But yeah, it was, uh, it was on a short notice for sure. And then we embarked and we spent four weeks aboard the ship, um, you know, with the quarantine. And it was, it was, I think, the biggest rescue that CI, the NGO CI has ever seen. We had rescued 408 people, out of whom 406 were rescued in only 20 hours of time from five different boats in distress. Uh, so it was like, you know, the craziest um, <laughs> kind of rescue operation. I don't know if craziest is the right word, but the busiest. Um, and um, it started, these these five rescues in 20 hours of time started on the 16th of May um, at 3.06 in the afternoon. And then continued, we rescued two, two I mean, two boats in distress, um, at 3 p.m., then another one around 5 p.m., then another one between midnight and 3 a.m., and then at the last boat at around 10 a.m. the next morning. Um, and we ended up with a deck, you know, full of full of people, including 150 children, as I've mentioned. And, you know, all of this happened in such a short period of time, but I think it was an amazing experience and everyone survived, so... We were so happy <laughs> in the end. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Then, yeah, almost literally. And I, what I'm really interested in is what life was like on the boat before that happened because of the stark contrast, you know, the anticipation. And the, I genuinely mean the lifestyle, you know, living on a small boat. This is such an interesting question because... I never thought about that, but you are completely right. Um, There was this, um, it it was an incredible experience in terms of social psychology, I guess, because we, uh, when we embarked, we, um, you know, we were 23 crew members and um, the atmosphere was kind of, um, you know, there was a, you know, I don't want to call it an adventure, but in a way it was a small adventure, right? Even though, you know, obviously, you know, it it was not an expedition you do for yourself. It was something you, you know, you do to help other people. But obviously, you know, it was a big journey for all of us. And um, there is a lot of training involved. So we did a lot of trainings um, at first and particularly the, the medical and the first aid trainings. But the first days um, were kind of unfolding in a very kind of peaceful and happy atmosphere. And then as we sailed off, um, as we were approaching the Libyan search and rescue zone, it took us around four or five days to, to get to that zone. You could tell that little by little the atmosphere kind of changed, and you know I remember prior to that we were we were playing cards and you know and 
we were having a good time together and I think it's very important because we all knew we were going to face something potentially very difficult that could have even like you know involved you know finding people who had drowned and so it's very important I think to build those relationships with your crew members and you know also be able to to laugh together and to you know share those moments together but little by little as we were approaching the the, the search and rescue the sazo it it the atmosphere got so tense and everyone started going to bed really early at night it was like 8 p.m and everyone was going to bed and and you know at one point i remember with my with my um cabin mate uh, we were we went to bed this was after we had arrived in the search and rescue zone we knew the weather con- the weather conditions were were good and we actually went to bed and i think we were kind of uh, she was she was part of the rescue team and she was kind of wearing her rescue you know special um equipment you know clothes um and i had this little paper and um where i had written um the instructions for how many you know chest compressions and ventilations you have to give to people who are drowning not drowning children adults and we were kind of having that on us when we went to sleep because we knew that we could be woken up by the alarm at any time you know at night and had to be ready to to, to be you know rescuing people and at that time it it was suddenly everything became very different and also i think for me um i know it might sound a little dramatic but there was that you know theme of of death and you know despair for, for me it was something that you know you could feel in the air and um of course once you arrive into the search and rescue zone it you you may come across um you know seeing i don't know a life vest in the in the water or something like that and you know where you are you know that you are in a desperate zone where people drown where people try to cross every day where people you know suffer from unimaginable suffering you know aboard these tiny wooden boats you know suffering from hypothermia and you know and with the sun hitting them and you just know that you are in a in a very sad place and so the adventure all of a sudden became very different at least to me hey there it's michelle norris i'm host of a podcast called your mama's kitchen when i travel i'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when i'm not at home and one of the things i love to do when i am at home is entertain and airbnb allows me to do that when i was in california recently i rented a house that had a great kitchen and when we were sitting around the table we're all thinking we're in someone else's house someone could be in all of our homes as well if you have a home but you're not always at home you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So what's it like when the alarm goes off and everything changes? The good thing is that we have trained that many times. That's, you know, really important is that you know exactly what to do. And um, the first time um we were confronted with a distress call was actually it was i think the first day when we just we had just arrived into the search and rescue zone and the um i think it was the first officer he came to 
to uh, to the mess room and we were actually having lunch and he said, you know, there is a distress call that we, I think the distress call came from an organization called the Alarm Phone that um, receives um, distress calls from satellite phones and um, from, from, you know, people aboard the, the wooden boats. And we were told that there was a distress call, for, you know, for, it was about regarding a ship that, a wooden boat with uh, many women and children aboard. Um, but it was very, very far away from us. It was 16 hours away from us if we went there full speed. And that was the first, I think, um, time when we were confronted with the fact that even though you are there, obviously the search and rescue zone is really, really big, right? It's, you know, that is technically the search and rescue zone. But because there is no um, kind of European operation, there is no, I mean, there is the Libyan Coast Guard that takes people back to Libya, where they are being put in detention centres. So that's the worst fear for all the refugees. But there is no one really to rescue the people and take them to a safe place. And so this, you know, this incredibly big search and rescue zone is is only being patrolled by small, you know, civil search and rescue NGOs like like CI and and many others. At that time, we were the only one, the the only rescue ship um, in the whole zone. The Sea Watch was was there about three weeks before us, and then the Itamari came after us. But at the time, we were the only ones, and it's just this crazy feeling that you are in this you know, immense zone and you just can't make it on time, right? 16, 16 hours, that's that's just, you know, that's too long for, for a boat in distress and, you know, with people drowning. And and it, it was a horrible feeling. I remember, you know, we couldn't eat and all of a sudden, like, you know, the room went kind of silent. And, and what happened is that a few hours later, we were informed that this uh, wooden boat was actually taken taken back to uh, to Libya by the Libyan Coast Guard. So they were likely put back into a detention centre where, you know, the most horrific uh, human rights violations happen and, you know, where, where women are being raped and where children don't get food. But at the same time, you know, they they didn't drown. So that's, you know, and that's something that happens to you when you're a, a sea rescue person is that you see people, you hear about people being deported back to Libya. And then we had also found an empty boat um, that had been, that was, you know, a few hours later. That, and again, um, we we are pretty sure it was a boat that had been evacuated by the Libyan Coast Guard because... We haven't found any bodies, but it was just a boat and there were just, you know, things, things on it, like clothes and so on. But it, it was empty. So so for us, we knew that these people were kind of deported back to Libya. And then we rescued one um, small fiberglass boat with two people on it. And then a day or two later, we received... We actually spotted um, two um, two boats. Um, two, what we thought were two boats in distress, because that's another thing is that when you spot the boats from you know from the ship, you obviously we were doing the SAR watches with the binocular, but it's obviously very far away, so sometimes you are not able to tell one hundred percent. And we spotted two refugee boats in distress. There were one hundred and seventy-seven people, approximately, on board the two boats. 
we rescued them and then four other boats followed you know within less than 20 hours so um you know this is this is how how it goes i think with sea rescue and and this is how how it went for us and so from that moment on we didn't have time to think <laughs> we were just too busy rescuing people and then you know caring for the people yeah and there's definitely a few questions i want to ask about that but the first thing is what happened to you as a team of rescuers so obviously with the tragedy of not being able to go the 16 hours but then um obviously the, the the joy surrounding the rescues you arrived as strangers on that boat right we did yeah we didn't know each other i think we really bonded i think we really went you know we really got on really really well so it's definitely you know um um a journey that you will never forget so i think we will always you know share those memories and you know and we definitely bond with you know your 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 crew members uh but and this you know interest interestingly enough this happens to me with you know with other human rights stories i cover as well you know i when you when you meet the people that were with you on that reporting trip and you know, then then you don't see them and then you see them, say, a year or two, you know, down the road. It's it's always such a strong kind of feeling of, you know, an emotion of seeing those people. So I think it would be the same. Obviously, we come from many different countries. Um, but I think, you know, if, if we meet again one day or if we kind of bump into each other, we will definitely have that, you know, bond forever, I think. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, I've you've said this a few times throughout this conversation but you said it it was an adventure and then you said or was it an adventure should it be and I think I don't know these terms don't necessarily matter but equally I think it was adventurous right definitely I mean I you know the reason why I'm kind of reluctant to call it an adventure is that obviously it's you know it shouldn't be it's it's not something you should do because you are adventurous and, and then you are looking for something, you know, exciting to do. Um, it's, you know, it's something that I think everyone should do. It's it's not even something I think you should feel, you know, proud of yourself for because it's something that's normal and we should all make sure that, you know, people who are drowning are being rescued. Um, but at the same time, obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's a personal journey. You will have to kind of, you know, push your limits and work really hard. And so in, in that respect, it, it, you know, I think it is an adventure from a personal psychological point of view for each and every one of us. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And the reason I go on about it, and it's probably worth me clarifying this, you know, for you and other people is I just think we need to make sure we're living adventurous lives and that that's a personal thing and it doesn't mean we need to shout about how brave we are it's more of a living with intent and being brave and stepping out of our comfort zones and being purposeful and being willing to say oh I'm not sure I can do that but I think I'll try um, and it sounds like you do a lot of that and you seem like a very purposeful person <laughs> thank you well, I agree with you, you know, I think um, I think it's really important to do something. And this is something that I've learned as a journalist is that it is very difficult if you want to um, cover humanitarian issues. It's always very difficult, you know, to get to gain access to kind of get to these people. 
whether it's you know a, a refugee camp or a, a border or a you know a, a place or you know the middle of the Mediterranean it's always very hard to there's always a lot of difficulties but it's definitely worth it and I think people should not be stopped by those difficulties by the fact that you know doing a reporting trip or even you know going somewhere as a volunteer or an NGO worker it's always going to be difficult right and as a journalist you know people are afraid of journalists this country's where you cannot go as a journalist but it's always going to be very difficult for journalists, but it's definitely worth it. And, you know, we, we shouldn't be stopped by the fact that there are many difficulties and especially not when it comes to defending human rights or rescuing p- people, you know. Yeah. How could anyone argue with that? <laughs> um... Well, you know, I, um, I, uh, I was very surprised because what happened to me uh, was that I've covered the the rescue, um, for, for, you know, for many different media outlets, and and I I mostly write in English, but I've done a few stories in Slovakia and in the Czech Republic, and it was so sad to see that I have received, you know, so much hate mail and comments, and and I, you know, and in my stories I was highlighting the stories of the women and the children and the fact that we had nineteen infants, and you know, and. You know, when we were changing nappies and making baby food and and playing with the kids because that's what we were doing, you know, (laughs) once we had all the children on board. And yet, you know, when people read my stories, I've received so many comments and and so much email, you know, even like directed to my personal email, email address saying that I was making it up, that these children were, you know adult men and that you know I've received so so many really horrific comments and that really makes you question uh, you know humanity because it's like how can someone argue with that when really you know your reality as a rescuer is that you are there and you see all these people and you know so many of them were in bad condition and fainting and we had one 80-year-old dehydrated boy who who probably would have died if he had stayed on the wooden boat because he was suffering from um, severe hypothermia and and then you are confronted with these haters and that's very painful and it's really very kind of worrying so yeah I guess some people would argue with me you know and and, and it was very surprising for me yeah I suppose that's true it's me being naive given how how much polarity there is and disagreement in the world but I guess at the end of the day all we can do is tell the truth as it appears to us and hope that it's received well and I don't know I think personally I think human beings have a have a tendency to dwell on the negative which we are able to overcome and I'm sure for every the problem is for every negative comment you didn't also get a positive one because generally the positivity is just people read it and they go oh oh, wow, that's bad, I'm going to do X, or oh, I know about that now. It's only when people are angry that they write, and I know that from being a, a filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, I have to say, you know, obviously it was a very rewarding experience, and, you know, all the people that we rescued, you know, thanked us for saving their lives, and I've been in touch with some of them, and really, you know, I've received comments from 
from from women telling me that um their sister and you know one of the one of the one of the women we rescued she doesn't really have anyone in Europe and she told me if I wanted to be a second mother to her to her child because she doesn't know anyone and you know and I've received you know so many beautiful comments and so much love and also so much love from the refugee children you know who all wanted to to hug and to play with us so really you know definitely you know receiving those hate comments is nothing compared to what we what we received you know um aboard the ship um but it's very sad to see that people you know it's it's really sad to see that when you defend human rights when you just say i think all people should have human rights and um nobody should be um drowning and you know we all share the same right to to, to live people still you know you you would still find trolls who would kind of attack you for your humanitarian work and that is very sad yeah it is yeah i think it just is the way it is. I think I, I, I say it again, like all we can do is our best and tell our truth. And that's, that's it. You know, we're, I think oh, it's a big, heavy conversation. It's wine conversation, but we're a tiny little speck in a massive, great big pond. You know, there's billions and billions of people. And if we live with intent and purpose and positively and try to add more to the world than we take away, then that's all we can do. Right it's uh, um all of a sudden i'm so moved when you said that because this is actually right before i i um i went on the ci4 i uh, i did an interview with a holocaust survivor mr weintraub who is um who is a polish jewish survivor and this is exactly what he said in the interview and it was so moving as well because he was saying at the end of the day you know and after everything he's been through he he told me in the interview that it's so ridiculous because we are a tiny little you know speck of dust you know in 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 the universe and instead of helping each other and kind of living together we are fighting and you know and there's wars and hate when it's so ridiculous because we are just a little speck in the cosmos and we should all be together yeah um yeah so so that was a very you know beautiful interview i did for for minority rights group and um with you know amazing mr weintraub and he said exactly the same thing yeah there's always positivity to be found in anything maybe not anything but most things i always ask two questions at the end of every conversation um interpret them however you wish but what scares you What really scared me was the comments I received, not 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 from a personal point of view, because obviously, you know, when you're on the ship and you rescue 400 people, you couldn't care less. But, you know, about an email. But what scared me was that total kind of feeling of, of being disconnected, um, you know, from the reality of what I was saying in my stories and. And, you know, and in my interviews from the ship saying, look, we, we rescued 400 people in distress. Some of them were dying. Some of them were fainting. There were children. Some of them, you know, could have died. They were all in a very bad condition. There were babies, you know. Our youngest was only eight months old. And, you know, his mother was so afraid for him because he inhaled too much seawater and he was very, very sick. Um 
and yet, you know, people, some people, you know, we can call them trolls or haters or whatever, you, you know, we want, they still argue with me and say, this is not true and you're a criminal and, you know, you should be in prison and these people, somebody sent me a message and said that these people are less than monkeys, you know, this, this, this is a comment I've received and that really scares me. That really scares me. Yeah. I can imagine it does. Um, okay. And what brings you hope? What brings me hope is that, you know, when I do this job and I see these incredible people, sometimes you see children or teenagers and, and all these, you know, old ladies, these babushkas in Ukraine who have so much kindness and resilience and want to help people and show kindness to people despite what they've been through. And maybe I can end with, with a story like this from the ship. I um, We rescued um, at least five pregnant women. And one of the pregnant women we rescued, she, she was, um, this was on the 16th of May, and we actually rescued her during that night rescue that unfolded be between midnight and 3 a.m. So in the middle of the night when everything was pitch black, um, and our very courageous, you know, rescue team kind of went to to this wooden boat and 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 brought two pregnant women because they would usually bring pregnant women and children first. And this lady, obviously, you know, she was soaked in water and she was shaking and 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 she was she was pregnant and. I tried to kind of show her some support and some kindness and she didn't speak any English like we could literally just you know exchange a few words and then in the morning um, the, the women and children were sleeping in a kind of a container on board um, as she was she was lying down I you know I went to check on her because I wanted to make sure she was okay and then the following morning I, I went to check on her again and she was she she was a bit red and and she she looked like she was kind of suffocating inside so I offered I would help her to to sit um kind of outside the container and what was happening was that at that time we were actually finishing off our last rescue so the deck was full of people and you know what me and this lady could kind of see and observe was just a deck full of people you know and and the rescue team and the medic the medic team kind of running you know back and forth and across the deck and just just putting rescue blankets you know on everyone and and this lady started crying, this pregnant lady started crying. And I thought, oh my God, I re-traumatized her. Like, you know, she was just rescued during the night. And now I kind of, you know, I made her kind of come out of the container and, and watch another group of desperate people. And what have I done? And she was crying. And, and then she said to me in broken English, she said, you know, I'm crying because I want to help people. I want to do the work that you do. Because she was moved. And... That gives me hope. That's a pretty good answer. I'd say that's one of the best answers I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. And we'll, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Thanks for listening. 
For more information, follow us on Instagram at The Adventure Podcast. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft, is a Cold House production, and is produced and distributed by Orla O'Murray and Alex Hall. If you want to get in touch with feedback or a guest recommendation, or just to say hi, as many people do, then you can email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.